We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. In fact, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 for uh, really the, the next two or three months. We're going to be in this one chapter, uh, at least using it as our launching pad. This morning we're going to be uh, covering several verses and then uh, going forward throughout the fall, it's going to be our uh, launching pad into uh, a different, um, into uh, kind, of, kind of going back into our series that we did this summer looking at the attributes of uh, of God. And so we're, what we're doing is we're going to break down the second half of this book today, or this chapter today of Galatians chapter 5. We're going to break down uh, the second half of, uh, of this chapter. And, and then what we're going to do is we're going to start taking a, a look at the fruit of the Spirit. All right? Now, the fruit of the Spirit uh, uh, is something that we, we understand and we know as, as something that if you were in church, you, uh, you had lessons about this in your, in your Sunday school class. You, you've, you've seen all the cheesy drawings with the, uh, you know, the oranges and the grapes and the bananas and the apples, and that's supposed to somehow be the fruit of the Spirit for us to remember. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to take it and, uh, and kind of look at it from a different angle. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about how the fruit of the Spirit, each of those uh, fruits kind of represents a, a piece, a part of who God is and how we're supposed to mirror that attribute of God back to Him and to the world. But that's for next week and really for the rest of the fall. But that's how we will be doing that, going from uh, the attributes this summer, the incommunicable ones, the ones He does not share, to the communicable ones, the one He does call us to reflect in the world. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. What we're going to be looking at today is how that begins to manifest itself. How the fruit of the Spirit begins to show itself in our life and what our role is in that process. Uh, my kids are starting to get a little bit older now. They're in fifth grade and eighth grade and school started. And uh, I don't know if this happens for you guys, but as, uh, as, as school gets started and, and really kind of the age where our kids are, it's kind of caused us to step back just a little bit, reassess our parenting, reassess kind of what we want out of these uh, you know, remaining uh, gumballs, so to speak, as we talk about it here at Providence, how we want to uh, wisely use those and invest those and make sure that we are doing all that we can to prepare our kids as they go uh, forward and so the, the the start of school is always kind of one of those moments for for me and for us and seems to be especially this year in light of all the things that are that are changing and it, it, it it's caused us to even as they got they gotten a little bit older to pause just a little bit longer uh, on things like like time hop i don 't know if you guys have time hop on your phone or not, but that that little app is a blessing and a curse for sure. One pops up this week and it 's got my kids when they were this little and we were going out doing some exercise and running with them and and, and it just kind of it makes your heart hurt as a parent sometimes to see uh, those things, but it 's also a blessing to be able to look back and and reminisce as as well it 's one of the best things about being a parent, especially when your kids are young, is watching them grow and get older and watch, watching them learn new things. And, and, and part of that process, and, and many of you are in that stage right now with your kids or maybe just got through that stage with your kids, is learning how to watch your kids walk, 
how they, how they learn to, to, to walk and begin taking those first steps. You know, you begin by holding them in your lap and you kind of bounce with them a little bit and you let them kind of get their legs under them, get a feel for how they can stand and how strong their legs are. And you kind of let them, let them do that in your lap. And then you move to kind of putting them down on the ground and you, you, you let them kind of dance a little bit on the ground and, and then you kind of take your hands away and you let them just balance themselves on the couch or, uh, you know, on, on something nearby on your leg. And you kind of just watch them little by little take those, those small little uh, moments to, to get just a little bit closer to walking. And the way it seems to work is if it's your first kid, you're like, oh, I really want them to walk. And so you do everything to try to get them to walk and you hold their hands and let them do this whenever they're like six months and, and you, you, you push them to walk because you think that'd be great if your kid walks really, really early. And, and so you, you, you'll hold this and they'll kind of take your hands away and then you realize that their head is way too big for their body and they start to fall forward. And if you're good, you catch them. If you don't, you just tell them to shake it off. They'll be fine. Um, and, and they're learning in that process to, to walk. And that's, that's what they're doing the, the whole time until finally that moment happens when they take their big first step and they kind of, and usually the first time that you say that your kids walk, it's not so much that they walk so much as they were trying their best to let their, their legs keep up with their head that was pulling them forward. So they just kind of, you know, legs are churning, heads pulling them forward, and they just kind of fall forward to uh, to, to whoever it is that's there on the other uh, side. But in those moments, everybody cheers, everybody goes crazy, scares the kid to death because they don't know what they did. But everybody's really, really excited because they're walking. And then somehow within just a matter of days, they go from being uh, this little kid that can barely take a step to running so fast that you can't keep up with them. And now, as a parent, you're going everywhere trying to keep up with them. Now, with the second kid, you're like, knocking them over because you don't want them to start walking. You're like, no, no, no. I got enough on my hands right now. I don't need you to be mobile too. So you just like walk by and knock them over and say, you know, that'll help you one day in life. But for now, I need you to not walk. I need you to be less mobile. Um, But there's something about that moment whenever your kid takes his first step, whenever they begin that process of walking, that is, it, it kind of marks you a little bit. It kind of, kind of marks you as a family. You realize that chapters are changing, things are moving, and and so we've we've been looking back on on some of that stuff. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what happens after you become a Christian. We're going to look at what happens after your uh, new birth, from from who you were, from death to life. And what it looks like to start taking your first steps as a Christian. And then what it looks like as you grow in Christ and as you grow and and fill yourself with the Spirit. What it looks like to go beyond taking those first steps to, 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 to really being able to stand and walk on your own. In a lot of ways, the two, the two things kind of mirror one another in the way that they work. So we're going, to, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read this morning 13 through 24, and then what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go back through this and kind of reevaluate what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom. This is what we looked at last week, this idea of being free from religion, free from the, the, your past For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And in case he didn't cover everything, he goes and he says, uh, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. We'll stop there for now. So, in this section, Paul is effectively wrapping up an argument that he's been building for five chapters in the book of uh, Galatians. He's been making it throughout this entire chapter, but really what's, what's happening in this entire chapter is based on everything that he said in chapters 1 through 4. And what he's wanted to make sure uh, to, to communicate is that the Galatians know uh, this one thing, that Jesus is all that you need. He is all that you need. And he labors to make this point. He makes this point technically, he makes this point passionately, and he labors for them to understand this idea. You don't need to be good, you don't need to be Jewish, you don't need to do anything uh, if you are following Jesus in order to get Jesus. You just need Jesus. But now he shifts his argument from its ground to its action. See, so he's laid out the ground in chapters 1 through 4, but now here at the end of chapter 5, he is switching it from its ground to its action. This is how Paul preaches and teaches in in virtually every one of his letters. If you're ever reading a letter that Paul has written, see if you don't see this same pattern. He will tell you what has been done, and then he will explain how what has been done is the grounds for your hope, for your salvation, and it is also the motivation for the driving force behind what you do. So here's the pattern. What has been done now leads to what you now do. And you cannot flip those. If you flip those, you do not have Christianity anymore. You cannot go to what you do now leads to what Christ has done. You cannot earn what Christ has done based on what you do, you have to get it in the right order. What Christ has done then leads to what you now do. And that's where we're picking up on that argument this morning as he makes that transition into what you now do. So he's made all these arguments, these elaborate arguments about the the essential, all-encompassing nature of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross how it has canceled the demands of the law, and how we are now free because of what Jesus has done. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know that truth, maybe that's the first time that you've heard it said that way, there is simply nothing more important that I can drive home to you than that. That you are a sinner. That we are all sinners. 
And we have broken God's law unquestionably at almost every place. We have fallen short of the standard that God has put forth for us, which is complete perfection. And if you're like, well, that's, that's an unrealistic expectation. Surely God doesn't expect us to be perfect. No one is perfect, which is exactly the point. We can all agree no one is perfect, yet that is the standard that God holds us to. And He says, you must be perfect. We cannot come close to achieving that standard, so we need someone to step in on our behalf and intervene or alter something here, or we are in big trouble. And what Paul teaches here in this letter is that no amount of religion, no amount of good deed, no amount of being a good person will ever come close to stepping in to alter things for you. Because as good as you think you can be, you cannot be perfect. You will not even be close. And in fact, the more you try to be good to quiet your conscience that that constantly nags at you, the worse off you are. The only thing that can help us is the very thing that God provided, His Son, Jesus. And that trusting in Him meets that standard of perfection on our behalf. That is the essence of salvation and Christianity. That is Paul's message so far in Galatians. But now in Galatians 5, he makes the turn. He moves from the ground of our faith to now the outworking of our faith. That's the passage for, the morning, for this morning, what we just read. And it's important that we get that right here and just uh, as, we, as we go through this. And I want to tease that out as we go through this passage uh, for the rest of this. But before I do that, I want to remind you of, of what what we are doing here uh, at all, what we are, uh, what we are trying to kind of convey. If you were here uh, last week or if you uh, were able to see the message online last week, then you know, but I know a lot of you, uh, this may be your first time or maybe you missed last week's message, but we're going back and we're revisiting our series from the very beginning of this year, which we called All In for 2020. And now we're going back and we're revisiting that idea of being all in for 2020. And we're saying, all right, in January, we were ignorant as to what 2020 was going to be. We were ignorant to the dumpster fire we were walking into. So can we still be held accountable for all the promises that were made for 2020 when we said, I'm all in, but we didn't know that it was going to be what it has become, right? And what we've said resoundingly over the last three weeks is not only are we, are we going to be held accountable for that, not only can, can we still say we're all in for 2020, but in light of what everything has been for this year, we should double down on this idea of being all in for Jesus in 2020. The chaos and the craziness that has been this year should not cause us to shrink back, but should cause us to press in. And so what we're talking about today is what that looks like when we decide to press in. What that looks like whenever we decide to move in and say, God, I'm still all in. Not only am I I still all in, I'm more all in than I ever was before, if that's possible. Can you be be more than 100%? It's, it's us saying, I now know my eyes are open and it does not cause me to, to pull away. But it causes me to say, God, I need you more than I ever needed you before. Or at least I see that now. 
And what I said last week, and I still believe to be true, is that I firmly believe that the days ahead of us, the weeks and months that we are about to go through as a nation, as a church, as individuals, what we, as families, what we are about to go through will be some of the most important days that we will ever experience in our lives. And then at some point in our life, we will look back on this time, these days, and we will say, either that is the day that drew me closer to Christ, drew me closer to His Spirit, that that caused me to lean on Him, or it will be the days when we say, that's whenever I drifted away. That's whenever I just kind of got taken out to sea. That's when when I kind of walked away and I didn't even realize what I was doing. Those days are now. Those days are right here before us. And I'm pleading with you to see this moment, to recognize this moment, and to make sure that you glorify God in this moment and you pursue Him with all that you are. Which brings me to Galatians 5. Because that language, what I just said to you guys, pursue Him with all you are, that's good preacher language. That sounds like, yeah, all right, let's do it, let's go, I'm all in, we can do this, yeah. And then you walk into Monday and you're like, wait, wait what, what am I supposed to do? I, what, how, how is that different than what I did on Friday? And, and, and you can get lost in a hurry. It's good preacher language because it kind of gets at our hearts. He gets at the core of who we are and our desire, our good desire to know Jesus. I like that language. It's good language. I use it in my own life as I, as I kind of preach to myself uh, uh, at, at times. And, and I use it at times when I preach here. It's good language. But here's the thing. If we're not careful, we'll fall into the trap of believing that our pursuit of Jesus looks like this. This kind of white-knuckled, hang-on-for-dear-life, charge-hell-with-a-water-pistol, read-the-Bible-five-times-in-a-year, pray-six-hours-a-day, journal-till-our-hands-hurt, and we're going to do everything that we can think of to make God love us more. And if we're somehow able to do that, we're probably going to fall into some of the same problems that the Galatians were having. We'll pursue Jesus with all that we are, in the hopes that Jesus might love us a little bit more. But that's not, that's not how Christianity works. Because that has nothing to do with faith. That has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And it has everything to do with our flesh trying to prove something and trying to be something that we are not. When I say that I want these days to mark us and to mark me and you, I do not mean that I want you to ride some emotional wave out of this craziness into next year. I do not mean that I want you to take the negative and turn it into a blessing and some other clever way of saying that that I'm not clever enough to figure out. Like That is not what I want you to do. I do not want you to, 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 to take all this and just make it some emotional thing and you just hang on to get to the end of the year and then you'll, you'll be able to, to charge with the momentum into next year. That is not what I mean. What I mean is that I want you to live a life that looks markedly like Galatians chapter 5. Last week we saw that Paul is addressing these people that have begun to drift. In verse 7 it says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
he sees them slipping away from the truth and he knows that, that the days are critical. So what instruction does he give? He tells them to go back to what has been done. And let that be your launch pad for your life. He says, you have been made free. And notice how I I said that. That is a passive thing. You have been made free. It doesn't say you are freeing yourself. You have freed yourself. You have made yourself free. He says you have been freed. And because you have been freed, rejoice in that. That was verse 1 of chapter 5. But then he says that freedom should let you push to love and care for others. That's what we read there in 13, 14, and 15, that it should push you to love and care for others. And in verse 16, and then he says, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. If I could give you one exhortation this morning, that would be it. Walk in the Spirit. If you can take one thing out of this morning that you can just kind of brand in your head for the rest of 2020, this would be it. I would say walk in the Spirit. Simple enough, right? Four words, walk in the Spirit. The problem with how simple that sounds is that I dare say the vast majority of Christians can't even tell you what that sentence means. They can't say this is what it means to walk in the Spirit. If I were to survey simply everyone in this room, I think I would probably get a different answer from each one of you. There is so much confusion that comes up when we start talking about the Holy Spirit. And so when I say walk in the Spirit, what does that, does that mean be emotional? For some of you, that would be the idea that you would, you would be able to, 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 to draw from. For you, that means that you need a song that gets you fired up, that gets you charged up, that gets you ready to roll. For others of you, whenever I say, walk in the Spirit, then what comes in your mind is you start thinking about people speaking in tongues, and you start talking, thinking about people doing uh, prophecies and, and healing people and smacking somebody in the head and watching them fall down. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. That's not what Paul talks about at all in this chapter. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere in Scripture where it indicates that the Spirit draws attention to Himself. Because according to Jesus, the Spirit's job is not to draw attention to Himself, but instead is to put the spotlight back onto Jesus. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 16, and He lays out two primary roles for how the Spirit will work Once Jesus is gone. John chapter 16, this is what Jesus teaches. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So that's a a big thing to say right there in the first place. Because given the choice, we can take our current state, or we can take following Jesus around Jefferson City for the next three years. Every one of us would say, I want to follow Jesus. Every one of us would say, let me just follow Jesus around. 
Let me, I, I want to see him. I want to see him do those miracles. I want to see him kind of give me the, the power to be whatever it is that he's called me to be. I, I want to be with Jesus. I want to I see him with my eyes. I want to be able to reach out and I want to be able to, to, to touch his, his hands. I want to see Jesus. And what this says is that you're better off where you are right now with the spirit inside of you than you would be if Jesus were right here walking with you. The way J.D. Greer says it is the, the spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but that's what Jesus says. And then Jesus says, and, he, and when he comes, he will, here's, here's the first thing the spirit does, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. What does it say in verse 14? He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit's role is twofold. One is to convict, uh, convict you in your sin and to glorify Jesus by continually pointing us back to Him and His teachings. Convict you of your sin and continually point you back to Jesus and keep saying, go back to Jesus and glorify Him. It's, it's markedly similar to what Paul is doing in Galatians where he keeps saying, quit doing this other stuff, Galatians. Go back to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Stop it, Galatians. Quit, quit running this way. You were doing so well. Go back to Jesus. That is the role of the Spirit. And so Paul's going to tease those two things out for us here in these couple of verses. And he sets the Spirit's works against our own works. He tells us that there is a battle to be fought for our minds and for our hearts. If that has never been present or like obvious to you if you haven't seen that like you've kind of been going through life and you don't realize kind of the 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 things that are at stake whenever you walk outside it has to be clear to you now there is a battle at stake for your heart and for your mind when you walk into school when you walk into class when you walk into your job whenever you're looking in the at, at your family at home whenever you're cooking dinner tonight, there is always a battle for your heart and for your mind. And Paul says what's going on is not just a simple matter of who's in control and who takes control. What's, what's, what's going or like in the world, but what's going on is who's going to be in control inside of you. Will it be your flesh or will it be the spirit? Will the Spirit work and do these two things, convict you of sin and lead you to Jesus, or will it be your flesh which will completely push you against those two things? Listen to how he says it in verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. This is back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. He lays it out as clear as you can. You can't say, well, I just want this type of thing, and I think Jesus would be okay with this, even though this is something that 
It doesn't, I don't need Jesus for this. I just want this. What he says, those two things are, are set against one another. They're at war with one another. They're at odds with one another. Your flesh does not want the same end as the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So what this is telling me is that your flesh, is the things you want to do, you, you, your flesh and your Spirit are both present inside of you now. There will be a day whenever glorification will come and we will not have to fight that battle. Where we can sing the song, perfect submission, all is at rest. I long for the day where I can sing that verse and it be true. Perfect submission, all is at rest. But until Christ comes or He calls us home, that is the fight that we will have. There will be no perfect submission. We will be at war. And that is the reality that Paul wants us to see. So you can see it in Galatians chapter 5, but if you're a Christian, surely you can feel it too. You feel the pull of your flesh against what it is that God has called you to do. You, you feel the pull of the Spirit against what your flesh is, is crying out for you to do. And you can feel those two things in this kind of cosmic tug of war going on inside of you. We are constantly bombarded with messages that our flesh will seek to latch onto. Sometimes those messages will be obvious and easy to see their destructiveness. Other times, they may not be quite as easy for us to spot. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Now this is evident as Paul is saying, look, I can, I can objectively see these things and I can tell you that's what they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, that things like these, he throws it all in there. Like he just rattling this stuff off. I can imagine as he's writing this letter, as he's dictating this, le- this letter, whoever's writing it, it's just writing as quick as they can. Because Paul's just rattling them off because it's just obvious what it looks like when the flesh is in control. But the thing is, it's obvious to an outsider whenever you can look at it objectively. But for you personally, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes you can see the sin that's in front of you. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's any easier to fight against. You know, I can feel sometimes whenever, whenever I've got like anger that is that's rising up in me, I can see it coming and I can say, I do not want to lose my temper here and still lose my temper, right? You can see it coming and you still, it's like, you can't, it's like a train that just... But it's obvious what that is. It is the flesh in control. And then there's other times that it's not so obvious and you can only see it in your rear view mirror and you realize, oh man... That was a mess. That was a train wreck. Paul warns us that these things are not to be what marks us in the descriptor of a Christian. Instead, we need to be marked by a different set of identifiers where we'll camp out all fall along through each one of these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Just rattles those off too. Paul's list here is full of Things that will mark the life of a Christian. In varying degrees during this life, we will never be able to manifest them perfectly, but they will mark the life of a Christian. Preacher John Stott, some of you have, have probably read a, a book for, from, by him or, 
or have heard of him. He used to, he used to pray every morning. He would pray this, this prayer. Covers all three, uh, all three persons of the Trinity. He would say, Heavenly Father. I, he would say, Heavenly Father, I pray this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is a prayer I might just have to take on for myself every day. That is a great way to start your day. Not coming and saying, God, I've got all this stuff I need you to help me with today. Make this day good for me. But instead, you come and say, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. I pray I can take up my cross and follow you. And I pray this day that you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. So instead of going and saying, God, I pray that you will make uh, this day great for me, you are saying, God, I pray that you will make me great for this day. And it changes how you approach things. Because if you're praying, God, make this day great for me, then when the day goes south, your faith goes south. Your obedience goes south. Because you're saying, God, how how come you didn't answer this prayer? But if you're saying, God, make me right for the day ahead, well, then whatever the day brings at you, what you're saying is, God, I pray that you will manifest yourself in these moments. That my flesh will be crucified. And that your spirit will be evident. Whatever comes. What a prayer for us. What a way for us to begin a day. And that will look a lot like what the Spirit's job is. Glorifying Jesus. As I have labored to try and figure out the right words and the right tone to set in these days that I feel are so critical, I keep finding myself going back to this chapter. In part because I feel Paul's angst for his people as they are beginning to drift. But also in part because I believe the coming months will demand much of us as a nation, as a people, as a church, as Christians. And I fear the church in America will be marked by things that look a whole lot more like the first list than the second. Nevertheless, that does not have to be what marks you and I. I feel a deep need to call us to be marked by these things, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists here. And that's what's interesting about this list, the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a doable list. It's not one you can check off. If you're here at Providence, you know I rail against the checklist frequently. But, but here is exactly why. Because right now, as we kind of bring this, this message to, to a head, it would be easy for me to kind of lay out a list of things for you to do. If you want to show the fruit of the Spirit, here's the list. Go do these things. If you want to make sure you're not drifting away, here's how you anchor yourself. Go do these things. And each of those things would be good things. I could tell you to read your Bible, and you should. 
But an atheist can read the Bible. It doesn't mean that he will have the fruit of the Spirit. I could tell you not to do the, 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 the things on that, that first list. I could preach for the next three months about all the things that you should not be doing during this critical time. I could say don't watch TV, don't watch R-rated movies, don't cuss, don't lose your temper. And that if you do all these things, all will be fine. Because that's the moral standard that has been somehow kind of laid out there. And if you can go through life and do these things, all will be fine. Just check your list. And then it will look like the fruit of the Spirit has come out of you. But what I want to call you to, and as much as anything, what I want to call myself to, is to be radically committed to living out our Christian life in the midst of chaos, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of what just feels like absolute war outside of us and inside of us. What I want to call us to is in the midst of that to be wholesale committed to being kind, good, loving, joyful, peace-seeking, faithful, gentle, self-controlled people. That is the list. But here's the thing about that list. You can't put that list on your fridge and check it off. You can't get to the end of the night and be like, all right, I did it. I was loving today. I did it. I was, I was, I was faithful today. I did it. I was, you, you can't get to a place where you say, I've done that. What's next? That's not how this list works. At no point can you say, I've done that. I'm good now. This list renews itself constantly the moment you think you've checked that box and you're good to go there is the moment you will slip and you will fall away in those places there is no checklist to say do these things that's not how this works the list paul gives us can't be checked off because the flesh is always at war with the spirit trying to take us away from these things This list is one that can only be accomplished if we are in the continual pursuit of the elimination of sin in our lives and the glory of Jesus in the world and in our lives. In other words, this list can only be completed if we are walking with the Spirit. They aren't things we do so much as they are things that we are. They come from what we have been made now through the Spirit. They come from this freedom that we have been given. Freed from the the tyranny of the flesh, the slavery of the flesh. Freed to pursue and let the Spirit reign in us and control us. And Paul says at the end of Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25, 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That term, keep in step with the Spirit, that's different than, than the, the earlier term where he says, walk by the Spirit. It's a different word. That word that, that, word that translated keep in step with the Spirit is more, like a, it's more like a military term. It doesn't mean like strolling along the beach with a friend, kind of walking shoulder to shoulder. 
The idea here is that the Spirit leads and you are there to follow. So the Spirit leads and you keep in step because you are marching close, following closely as the Spirit takes the lead. So this is not, oh, me and the Spirit are buddies and we're just trucking along doing our thing. This is, Spirit, you lead and I'm right on your heels. You lead and where you go, I'm right behind you. That's the exhortation from Paul. Let the Spirit lead and you stay right behind Him. Don't miss a step. Be in sync as the Spirit steps, you step. You don't get to say, Spirit, I think we go over here. Spirit, I think we should go over here. If the Spirit goes there, you go there. That's the idea that Paul has here. This isn't a passive thing for you to do. You are actively listening, watching, and following the Spirit. So what Paul is saying is that if the Spirit He's saying is, is if the Spirit is what now gives us life, then let us passionately follow as close as we can. Friends, if these days are to be marked as the ones that changed us for good, if these days are to be marked by us, in our relationships, in our sphere, in our own lives, by the glory of God, We will only get there so long as we are keeping in step with the Spirit. Listening to His voice for conviction of sin. Applying Jesus' teaching to our hearts and glorifying Him alongside the Spirit. That's what it means when it says, keep in step with the Spirit. This fall, you will have all the opportunity that you need for the flesh. And when that happens, you will be tempted to keep in step with the flesh, to follow what it calls over here. And Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. I cannot tell you how deeply I want that for you and for me. Maybe for some of you, for the first time ever. Wouldn't it be awesome if maybe for the first time in your life, this fall, you are known by the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I don't want you to do a to-do list. I want you to follow Paul's exhortation on the to-be list. And the crazy thing is, at no point does it tell us in in the New Testament, never does Paul tell us to fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. He says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Really a better translation of that is to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. But either way, Paul is never giving us a a, a list of things that says you do these things, you will be filled by the Spirit. It is a passive verb. It is happening to you. And so what your task is, is to simply go back to Jesus. Glorify Him. Latch on to that freedom that we have been given in Him. And then watch what happens when you set your sails and the Spirit fills those sails. Be filled with the Spirit. 
and watch the fruit come out. You can't wake up and decide, I'm going to be more faithful today. I'm going to be more loving today. I mean, you can do certain things, but ultimately that won't be about who you are. It will be about an appearance. And so your, your prayer has to, has to mirror that of John Stott's, not saying, God, help me to do these things so that I can be loving. It would be, God, help me to be loving so that I can do these things. And it's all, all grounded in the freedom of the cross. I pray that we would be marked by that in these coming days. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning it is our confession, it is our conviction that we are far too often marked by our flesh. We are far too often known by our flesh. Father, it is our confession that we do not seek the Spirit as we should. That in our efforts to keep in step with the Spirit, we instead have stepped back and shrunk away. Father, I pray this morning for all of us in this room that this morning would be marked as a moment where we have given ourselves to you in a passionate pursuit of you. Not with a to-do list, but in a desperate plea that you would make us the person you have called us to be. Father, put our flesh to death that the Spirit may live and lead in our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.